Welcome to Contracting Conversations. My name is Jim Valley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Scott Williams. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Steve Fasco, DAU's subject matter expert for personal services, part two in our series on personal services. So welcome back, Steve. Oh, thanks for having me back. I really appreciate it. We're glad to have you back. So what are we going to be talking about in the second part? Well, in the second part, we're going to be discussing some very interesting topics, um, looking at the uh, 13th Amendment to the Constitution and its impact on personal services, and then some of the issues involved with that 13th Amendment as, as far as it goes with contracts, which is kind of broken down into its issue with lack of market substitutes and the demand of specific performance. So in this first episode, you know, we discussed the difference, right, between personal services, non-personal, and these de facto personal services contracts. So those of you who haven't heard that, please go back to the first episode and start with understanding why the government is concerned about personal service contracts. So and then again, you mentioned, like you just said, the impact of the 13th Amendment and the Constitution on personal services in our previous podcast. So what do you have to say about that? Yeah, it's so interesting as everybody equates the 13th Amendment, the Constitution to slavery and the abolition of slavery. But I don't think a lot of people know that it is just a simple 32 word sentence that had such a profound impact on the country. And not only the country, but it is the root of all issues of personal services contracts. So the actual 13th Amendment, the, the crux of it, states that neither slavery or involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist in the United States or any place subject to the jurisdiction. That's basically the entire 13th Amendment in itself. But within that, the discussion of slavery and involuntary servitude becomes a huge impact on personal services contracts, especially involuntary servitude. So the law perceives the situation surrounding personal services contracts differently than ordinary service contracts. Enforcing specific or continued performance on a personal services contract may be considered unconstitutional as a master-servant relationship or involuntary servitude. So that's been the main concern of the courts when it comes to, you know, demanding performance on a personal services contract. And the reason is the, the law is really more concerned with the constitutional rights of the contractual parties rather than actual performance on the contracts. And for this reason, the courts tend to keep their distance from enforcing continued performance on personal services due to the prohibition on involuntary servitude in the 13th Amendment. So as a result, contractual obligations to render personal services typically will not be enforced. So the courts tend to avoid granting any kind of injunction or continued performance on personal services contracts. Great, Steve. So I'm going to pull on that string just a little bit more here. So why are personal services contracts generally prohibited within the government, given that backdrop? 
Well, that's what I had a lot of issue with when I first started my research, and I wasn't finding a whole lot within government documents or any type of the regulations that really explained that issue. So when I started my research, I, I had to look at contracts and case decisions based on other industries where personal services contracts are commonplace. Many of those contracts have to do with, you know, different type of, you know, hotel services, believe it or not, has a lot of personal services contracts with it. Definitely the entertainment industry and the, the sports industry is likely where I found the most profound explanations of why personal services are such an issue. So one example, let's look at the entertainment industry. One main concern about personal services is what is called the lack of market substitutes. So take, for example, my parents in the early 1970s flew to Las Vegas and saw Elvis Presley perform at the Intercontinental Hotel, which I'm very jealous of. If Elvis refused to perform or was unable to perform that night, would it be appropriate for Elvis's management to replace him with another performer? And I think the answer would be no. When my parents went to see Elvis Presley, they expected to see Elvis Presley. So if he was unable to perform and they put an impersonator or another type of performer in there, we wouldn't consider that to be an appropriate replacement for Elvis. They're going to see Elvis. And on top of that, started posing the question in my mind, would the Intercontinental Hotel have any kind of recourse in court if Elvis refused to perform or was unable to? So I dug a little further and saw that there was many types of issues when it concerns, uh, you know, different type of entertainment performers. I think one of the most profound cases when it came to entertainment was one with Betty Davis kind of set a lot of groundwork for dispute that she had with uh, a venue that she was supposed to perform at. So I was looking into those court documents, which led me into a lot of other ones, and trying to look at, all right, how would the courts decide this type of case? How would they decide whether a replacement was an appropriate substitute or not? So the courts understand that when two parties enter into a personal services contract, the relationship is very complex. Consequently, cases surrounding personal services become very problematic. The courts find best difficulty in determining what is an appropriate substitute. And there are a lot of difficulties in forcing it, enforcing an individual to perform to a certain standard if they don't want to or cannot, to begin with. This includes performing to a standard which the individual cannot attain. So many times if a person is forced to perform a task they do not want to do, the relationship becomes very strained, which could lead to poor business results. Furthermore, it would be also challenging to enforce these standards with a replacement. I've never heard it stated that way when it comes to personal services, non-personal. It's, you know, it's kind of a vague area. So let's get out of the 70s and let's get more current. 
Do you have any more examples of how personal service contracts are used in the commercial sector? Oh, there are tons. I've seen more recently, I was looking into sports contracts. And we always hear about disputes with sports contracts, probably more than any other industry out there. And sports contracts are in themselves personal services contracts. So I started looking at, okay, what kind of sports contracts and what ones, you know, could be a major issue or have a major impact. And I started looking at, you know, what sports performers were getting paid. And of course, the first thing that pops up is Lionel Messi's contract where he had a, a four-year soccer contract, which actually was very quiet. There wasn't a whole lot written about it, but he basically had a four-year contract of six hundred and seventy, about $674 million, which equates to about $170 million per year, which is astronomical as far as, you know, what he's getting paid as far as the contract goes. So that kind of made me you know, kind of think a little bit more about, all right, what types of issues could there be with maybe a sport that I understand a little bit more? So I started looking at American football, and one of the big contracts that, you know, I, I saw was, you know, Patrick Mahomes got a contract for about $503 million for a 10-year contract, which equates to around forty-five to $50,000, $50 million per year. So I thought a little deeper about, okay, what goes into Patrick Mahomes earning such a big contract and what kind of issues could happen with that? Well, if you think about it, sports contracts are based on, well, past performance and potential for future performance. So I dug a little deeper, not to get too deep, but, you know, looking at things like what is Mahomes quarterback rating compared to other quarterbacks and he ranks up at the top 2022. He was the very top and it averaged over the less than 2018 to be 76.28% or 76.28 quarterback rating, which is very high. Okay. So if you kind of take that as a measure to look at, you know, the value that he has as a performer and the contract that follows it, that's what we're looking at. So much of this contract is based on Mahomes' past performance and future potential. I started thinking, what if Mahomes had a major drop in performance to, say, like a 50 QBR quarterback rating? Can the Kansas City Chiefs demand that Mahomes perform better? How would they enforce that in the courts? Or in the reality of it, by looking at many of these court decisions, is that they would typically avoid granting a negative injunction, basically meaning that they're going to force him to perform to a certain standard because that could be a violation of Mahomes' constitutional rights against involuntary servitude. So going a little bit further into that, you know, beyond looking at, you know, just the demand of specific performance by the Kansas City Chiefs, Say Mahomes refused to play next season. The Kansas City Chiefs would have to prove to the court that Mahomes has such a unique skill, ability, and knowledge that he would not easily be replaced in order to receive a negative injunction. Now, the key words on that would be 
not easily be replaced. So that's what the courts are looking at when they decide to do an injunction or not. It used to be even more stringent. And that goes back to a case from 1902, where it was the Philadelphia Ball Club uh, versus Lajouet. This was Napoleon Lajouet played baseball. And basically, the lower courts looked at the definition of impossible to replace. So they did not grant a negative injunction. So Lajouet did not have to uh, perform his contract. Well, the appellate court went on and said, hey, impossible to replace is not a good wording. Let's change that to not easily be replaced, which is the standard we look at today. And then Lajouet lost that appeal, which he was forced to continue his his contract with Philadelphia. So it gets kind of hairy now uh, between the situations, and the courts would likely have to look at how Mahomes' absence could affect the standings, ticket sales, overall performance of the ball club. So could the ball club make the same argument if it were the third string running back or a rookie refusing to play? Probably not, because you can see that the absence of Patrick Mahomes would have a far bigger impact than a third string running back or a rookie. So in that case of, you know, somebody that's not, has the unique skills, abilities, or knowledge, the courts would like to refuse to hear the case and definitely would not be granting a negative injunction, which makes the contract unenforceable. So if there's no continued performance granted by the courts based on that, then we have an unenforceable contract. Well, in the government, we typically do not deal with Mahomes-level talent at most of our service contracts. We're dealing with talent uh, as far as, you know, personal services goes, uh, you know, typically somebody that can easily be replaced for the most part or is replaceable versus somebody that is so elite that they're the only person in existence that has the knowledge, skills, or abilities to be able to perform at a specific level. Therefore, we avoid doing personal services contracts because they are unenforceable. So although we do have exceptions to allow personal services contracts for those services requiring unique skills, abilities, and knowledge in which the individual would not easily be replaced, um, some of those would be experts and consultants limited by 10 U.S. code, um, uh, specifically medical providers are individuals that are experts in uh, defense intelligence or counterintelligence or mission support for special ops and things like that. So we do have um, a need for personal services contracts, but again, we're not dealing with a talent level so elite that that the person would not be replaceable, therefore rendering most personal services contracts within the government to be unenforceable in court. Wow. That's very interesting. Thanks, Steve. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, Steve, before we wrap up this session, is there anything you'd like to add? Yeah, one of the main issues that we kind of look at beyond this, now that we know that personal services is a major concern, um, specifically due to the inenforceability, because enforcing them may violate the constitutional rights of the individual contractor. We need to look at more specifically, you know, how, how do we work alongside these contracted personnel? Because the one thing that, you know, we talked about in the first episode was the ability to easily create a de facto personal services situation just by how we interact with the contracted personnel. So that's something we're going to want to dig a little bit further as we continue discussing personal services contracts. Great, Steve. Thanks. And folks, that's all the time we have for today. But please, if you haven't already, subscribe to our Contracting Conversations channel. Type any comments below to include your questions for future discussions. And spread the word of this channel to your peers and to those you supervise or lead. Let us help you answer their questions. And we look forward to having future Contracting Conversations with you.